Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, we do think of your word as powerful and effective in our lives, that the agent of sanctification, and so we pray, Lord, as you turn us to that time in this service where we take a close look at your word, that you would open our eyes to see uh, wondrous truths that would empower us to live lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're continuing where Jonathan has been uh, going through, and that is in the book of Romans, so I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17, and would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. From Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well, we've, we've finally come to the book of Romans, and it's only taken me 17 years <laughs> to get to this book. And you think, that's crazy. You know, why would it take you so long to, pre to preach from the book of, of Romans? And it's, it's certainly not because it's an unimportant book. On the contrary, it's perhaps the most foundational book that we can find in the Bible. It is, I would suggest to you, the clearest explanation of the gospel that we find anywhere in Scripture. It's a brilliant letter that Paul explains the gospel to a church that he's not yet visited. It, so it doesn't have specific issues that he's trying to address and the, that the congregation is dealing with. He wants to lay out the core and essence of what he is preaching and teaching as he prepares his way to go and visit this church. And as he does, as a result, we really get a very clear picture of this grand scope of the gospel. And I, would, and I say all that because I really think that's one of the great challenges to preaching through Romans. It's just a grand book. And Paul does such a masterful job of, of kind of walking through the gospel. It's hard to stop and just do a piece of it. If you, if you read through the book, you're going to find that he is asking and answering questions as he anticipates what's going to be asked as a result of what he has just said in order to clarify that. And how, I'd be curious to know, how many of you have ever eaten an oyster? See, it's kind of like that. It's very hard to eat an oyster in pieces. Have you ever tried to cut it up? It doesn't want to cut up. It you know, slides around, moves all over the plate, and if you bite into it, you know, it's just not what you expect. It wants to go down all as a whole, and Romans is like that. So if, if you really want to get a good handle on Romans, just go home and read it all in one sitting. Just read the flow and see how one argument is building to the next argument is building to the next argument. So that's our challenge when we come to this book and we preach it because we, we can't preach the whole thing all at once. <laughs> I have to preach it in pieces. So we're going to do our best to go through uh, and take little pieces without hopefully robbing it of the whole of the message of what he's trying to do. And uh, anyway, that's, all. that's the best we can do. So we're going to take a grand, scat, grand stab at chewing this oyster 
in pieces, as it were. So, let's jump in. What do we find in this morning's passage that we look at today? Because we're only looking at, at two verses. And, and we're looking at these two verses because they, they really introduce the theme of his entire letter. They're introducing what he's writing about, which is the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, he gives us a bird's eye view in these couple of verses, which in the coming weeks, of course, we're going to try to flesh out, follow his argument for how he's ex further explaining the significance of this, of this topic, of this gospel. So if I asked you this morning, what is the gospel? The answer would be right there on the verses. It is the power of God for salvation, for everyone who believes. We could say that on the first one. The gospel, in a nutshell, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. All right, should we pray? Say amen? Go home? <laughs> I mean, that is the gospel. And of course, there's so much packed into that statement. You know, what does, what does he mean by these different things? Why does he call it the gospel? What is the power of God? What is, what is this righteousness? What is salvation? All of those things are not completely unpacked in this, in this sentence alone, but he begins to unpack them through the book. We're going to take a quick stab at what he's hinting at in each of these as we try to, to gain a, a better footing for what is the gospel, if we answer that question. So let's just break it down. First of all, he says, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. That's the first thing he says about the gospel. And the gospel, of course, just means good news. So we're, Paul is saying it is very good news that the salvation is of the power of God. That is good news. That is radical news, in fact. It's very radical news, if we think about it. I mean, even if you think about it in our society today, if you ask the average guy on the street whether or not he believes there's an afterlife and what he has to do to get there, the typical answer you're going to find is, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I have to live a pretty good life. There's this implied aspect that salvation, whether or not I achieve salvation, is all dependent upon my own power. My own power. And Paul is saying something pretty radical. He's saying, guess what? It's not your power. It is by the power of God that salvation comes. Now, we'll have to unpack what salvation means in just a minute, and we'll do that. But first of all, he's saying it is by the power of God. Now, the fact that that's kind of an odd statement, at least in terms of conventional wisdom today, was also an odd statement in Paul's own day. People didn't always think of salvation in terms of being the power of God. Now, they may have associated God's power in awarding them something that can't be achieved completely on their own, but the decisive and driving factor of that award was always under the power of man. How did you live? Or what did you think? You know, have you attained to this secret knowledge? Have you attained to a particular kind of, of life? So if, going back even as far as some of the ancient cultures, in ancient Egypt, for example, to achieve salvation at the end of your life, it was believed that you, your, your soul would be put on a scale and weighed against the feather of truth. And if it, if it was able to be lighter than the feather of truth, then you would make it into the afterlife. So this, it's always dependent upon your own part. That's the idea of ancient Egypt. You move to ancient Greece and 
Of course, there's a variety of perspectives in ancient Greece, but one of the common views that you could enter this place called Elysium, some of the Romans as well thought that, as long as you were well thought of and well remembered by the people who still lived. So, of course, you had to live a life that was memorable. You had to live a life that was notable for its glory, for its goodness, for some mighty achievement that would allow you to live on and go on. You know, even, in, even in things like Norse mythology that are coming into more popularity, the, you know, the, the, all, the, uh, uh, the various places you would go in the dead, and of course the warriors long to be in the, the great hall of Valhalla. And the way you get there is by being a great warrior yourself and accomplishing great things. You know, you'll get to go and fight alongside the other, guy, other gods one day. Because I'm not quite sure that's a great eternal life. You get to go out and fight all the time. And of course, in Norse mythology, the ultimate end is they all die anyway, even the gods at Ragnarok. So it's, it's this, it's this uh, idea that if you're going to achieve salvation, however people might define that, it's always driven by what you're either thinking or doing, the life that you're living. So it's a pretty radical idea when Paul says that I want, the first thing I want you to know about salvation is that it's... It's by the power, the power of God. It's the power of God. It's not about what you do. It's not about the measure of knowledge that you have attained. It's simply about the power of God. Now, again, that's, that's something that ruffled the feathers of people. In fact, Paul knows that and why he says in the very beginning, he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. That's an interesting thing. He says that. I mean, I don't, I don't think we in the church, when we think about the gospel, is something we ought to be ashamed of. But in terms of conventional wisdom and an understanding of how you would attain to something, this is a little bit of, it goes against the grain. It's not something that people would readily accept. As Paul, you know, if Paul says this, salvation comes by the power of God. It's not about the life that you live or about the knowledge that you've attained. People would say, Paul, you're, you're a little off on this. Of course it matters how you live. It has to matter how you live. So what you're saying, Paul, doesn't make any sense. You ought to be ashamed for bringing up such a thing. You know, he talks about in his letter to the Corinthians that it's, you know, it's, it's foolishness in one sense, and it's a stumbling block in another sense. A stumbling block to the Jews, a foolishness to the Greeks. It doesn't line up with the way we want to think about being in control of our own destiny, being in control of our own life. And even believers, I think, struggle with this idea that it's all in the power of God because they, take, they think it takes away from the fact that then it doesn't matter how you live and no one's going to live a good life. If it doesn't matter how you live, then what motivation do we have to try and live a better life than we're living right now? It has to matter. Now, of course, by saying that the gospel is the power of God isn't saying the way you live doesn't matter. It's simply saying that salvation only comes by the power of God. Only comes by the power of God. So, that is, as we would say, good news. The other hard thing I think that, that he might be ashamed about is as they, look, as they look about this power of God and they don't see it. The world doesn't see the power of God clearly in its sights. I mean, in in Paul's day, the people of God were the people of Israel. And the people of Israel weren't exactly experiencing 
something that would, that would shout to the world, look what God's power has done for us. Here's a people that are, history is a turmoil of occupation and oppression. They have moments of greatness, but more than, great, more than those moments of, grace, of, of, of greatness, they have, they have long periods of oppression and of abuse and of loss. So you think, you say salvation is for God's people and it's, it's of the power of God, but I don't see God's power on display. So how does God's power work? Well, it's very subtle, obviously. It has to be very subtle. And somehow it has to work more on the inside than the outside. And Paul talks about that in his letter to Corinthians. As he talks about the things, the things that are spiritual can only be spiritually discerned. Your eyes have to be opened to it. So something on the inside has to be happening as opposed to more on the outside. And as you think about, of course, the person whom he held up as his God, Jesus Christ, whom he preached, well, Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. If God's power is leading to salvation, God's power just was shown to be defeated. So again, it seems pretty foolish to think that salvation would come by the power of God. It doesn't seem to be on display, and it doesn't seem to line up with what we know about how to live. Nonetheless, he says, salvation comes by the power of God. Now that is good news. I hope we see it continue to be good news, but now we need to understand, well, what exactly is salvation? What is this salvation that he's talking about that comes by the power of God? And there's there's a lot of things that we could read into salvation. What is salvation? We could try and define it the way we want to define it. And I think we have to be careful in that. Even, even with biblical ideas, I think we can get the wrong idea of what salvation is. Because if you just go back and you think about, we've been going through the Psalms, and the Psalms are prayers, and a lot of the prayers come from people who are in anguish, and they're crying out because they as a people have been oppressed by an enemy nation, by an enemy people, and they're crying out, longing for salvation. But in the immediate sense, the salvation they're crying out for is a release from the oppression of this nation that is stronger than them. You know, the Syrians are battling us from the north. The Assyrians are coming from the east. Sorry, I have to get that mental map going. The Babylonians are coming and they're taking over. All of the, the Persians are coming. So all these nations who are oppressing the people and they're crying out for help, there's the idea of salvation in their minds has to do from the oppressive physical force that is surrounding them as a people. And it's, of course, very tempting to think about that even in the first century. The people of Israel, once again, were occupied nation, occupied by the people of, of Rome, the soldiers of Rome, didn't have much freedom. So you could think about this salvation that Paul is talking about in terms of being set free from the Romans. But that's not what he was talking about. And to understand, of course, the term salvation, you just need to read the letter to get the context of what he's talking about. And salvation is not necessarily amounting to that. So we have to be careful of what we read into this idea. Even though the need and the hope for being set free from the oppressors is very real. And I would say that ultimately, especially if you go read the prophets, this is included in salvation. But it's an ultimate end. It's not the immediate sense of what Paul is talking about. It is the ultimate end, but not the immediate sense. So what do we understand about this term of salvation when he writes about it? 
What is he talking about? Well, he talks about it specifically with regard to a person's relationship to God. And now that idea is also found in the Old Testament. It's not a foreign idea. And that idea takes us a step closer into, what, into why the oppressors were always winning ground over ancient Israel. And that's important to realize. Why is it that the Babylonians were coming? Why is it that the Syrians were successful against the northern kingdom? Why is it that these enemy nations would come and have success against what should have been God's people displaying God's power? Well, the prophets tell us over and over and over, it's because Israel, you have not trusted in your God. You have abandoned the Lord. You have forgotten the Lord. And therefore, I am bringing these nations to bear upon you as a means, of course, of turning you back to trust in me. So there's this idea that steps one further. Salvation isn't necessarily first a relief from the oppressive people that are over them. It's, it goes deeper than that. It goes to the core. It goes to the, the reason why the oppressive people are coming upon you. The reason why the oppressors are coming and having sex against you is because you yourself have forgotten the Lord, because you don't have a right relationship with your God. So when Paul is talking about salvation, that's where he's going to. He's going to the root of the problem, not just addressing the symptom and the result. He says the salvation is about getting your relationship with God on right terms. That's this idea of salvation. I mean, Habakkuk is a, is a, is a great example of this, and this is what gets um, referred to. Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk uh, was a prophet who lived, of course, during the ancient Israel time, and he's, he's observing what he sees in Israel, and he's offering his complaint before the Lord. So this is what he says. Uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And the complaint he's bringing about isn't about a foreign nation occupying. He's talking about what he sees in the people of Israel, in the nation of Israel. This is what's going on. And he's offering this complaint, why are you letting this go, God? And in the next chapter, he, gives, he gets his answer. And the answer is, well, I'm going to send the Chaldeans. I'm going to bring them. We would think the Babylonians, another term. I am bringing them to come down upon you and wreak havoc among you. That's how I'm going to deal with this fact that you don't have a right relationship with me. Now, they're not coming to ultimately destroy you and end you. That's not the point. The point is I'm highlighting the fact that you don't have a right relationship with God. So, when Paul says, what is the, when he's answering the question, what is the gospel? He says the gospel is the power of God as opposed to the, the life or the skill or the knowledge of man. For salvation, he's talking about the restoration of a right relationship with the Lord. The root problem that brings all these other things about. That's what, that's what the gospel is. That's the good news. God is jumping right to the core and root of your problem. And he's doing it all by his power. So, this right relationship with God. 
And he goes on to say some other things about this. He goes on to write, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I know that can be a puzzling thing to say. Wait a minute, why are we making such a distinction? And of course, if you go and you're a student of the Old Testament, you're readily familiar with the idea that salvation was something that God's people were expecting to achieve. They weren't thinking necessarily of of the Gentiles, the other nations outside of Israel. Often their idea of salvation was from the Gentiles, from these enemies that were plaguing them and attacking them. And what Paul's saying, I want you to understand something about this salvation. It isn't just for you Jews, it's also for these other nations. And that was always the plan. In fact, one of the reasons why I'm bringing these oppressors about because you haven't been the light to the nations that you were meant to be. You see, you were meant to be a light as the means by which these other nations, these Gentiles, would ultimately come to my throne and they would know me. And they too would, through that, have a right relationship with me. So this salvation isn't limited in scope to one people group. It's not limited to any people who have done any specific thing or made any decision or achieved some measure of knowledge. It's all by the power of God, and it's indiscriminate into who it's to. In order to restore anyone on the face of this earth to a right relationship with God. So, what is this salvation? It's to a right relationship with God. It's a rescue both from the failure and consequent judgment of God... And it's a restoration to what your life is meant to be like, living in right relationship with the Lord. So it's, it's, a, it's a rescue from something, and it's a rescue to something. A rescue from death, and a rescue to life. And the, the, the aspect of that is what's get fleshed out later in the letter, of course. But how does it work? How does it work? Well, here's where we take a look at verse 17, where he says, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, there's another one of those terms we have to define. What is the righteousness of God? Well, it's something the gospel reveals. (laughs) We know that. In essence, righteousness is is a rightness. It's It's a trueness. So if you, that's you know, the simplest terms aspect. I think of it in like carpentry terms. If you're going to build a cabinet and you want your cabinet to do well, well, you have to build it true. It has to be truly square. And if you're a cabinet maker and you don't build your, your cabinet truly square and it comes time to come install it in the house, if you install it first, you could probably do it. But you might not be able to install much after that very successfully. And if you're trying to fit it into what's already there, you're going to have a hard time. If things aren't true, the rest of everything else can't get along. So this idea of the righteousness of God, he's showing something that is true, something that is pure, something that is right. And if something is right, it means life itself is going to mesh together. So there's this idea of rightness, something about rightness, something about trueness. So throughout the Old Testament, think about this in terms of how it's revealed. God does reveal his righteousness. He reveals his character. And of course, we're made in the image of God. And he reveals his character as he enters into these covenant relationships with his people. His moral nature, for example, is revealed in the moral law that he gave in the Mosaic covenant. 
So he, he, in the Old Testament, he is revealing this righteousness. But it's not revealed to the extent that it gets revealed in the New Testament, in the coming of, of Jesus Christ. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when he reveals his nature and character by giving them the written law, it's still on paper. It has to be interpreted and applied before it's really understood. And that wasn't always the easiest thing to do. In fact, when Jesus comes in his first famous sermon, which he gives Sermon on the Mount, he begins to interpret some of these moral laws to understand them. And we see that, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So this, the on paper, it's you shall not murder. But the essence of what that means is much broader than that. The application of that is much broader than that. And Jesus is teaching that verbally, but he's also demonstrating that in the life that he lives. So the righteousness of God is being revealed because the righteousness himself has come. Whereas in the Old Testament, they knew God through these covenants and through these laws. In the New Testament, they know God through this person where the laws are now embodied in the flesh. The actual, literal righteousness of God has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we say the righteousness of God has been revealed, we see it clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's one aspect of, of rightness, the rightness in the way that living a true and perfect life. But the other way is a rightness, a rightness in terms of relationship with God. And Jesus, of course, embodies that too. As Jesus walks rightly in righteousness, he also has an intimate relationship with the Father. So much so that at one point he says, I and the Father are one. And I know we can think about that in terms of the Godhead, but we can also think about that in terms of the complete unity of righteous living that is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ that is, in essence, the character of God. As the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory in the flesh. So we see not only this rightness of how to live, embodied by the person of Jesus Christ, but we also see what it means to have a right relationship with God. And what Paul is talking about in the gospel, he says in it, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation towards a right relationship with God, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, and you have to have that in order to have a right relationship with God. And here's how it gets to you. You ready for the next part? It's the great part. It's perhaps the greatest part we find here. He says, by faith. From faith for faith. From faith to faith. However you want to interpret those prepositions, those Greek prepositions. The idea is that this righteousness, this right, not only this right uh, life, but also this right relationship with God is revealed for you by faith. It comes by faith. And this is why 
We understand that the gospel is the power of God, not the power of man. Because it's alien to us. It's alien to us. That's how Martin Luther talked about it. It is a righteousness that is alien to us, but completely embodied in the form of, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that rightness, that righteous life, is credited to our account through our faith in Christ, through our belief, through our trust. And even that is a result of the work of God. As he goes on to explain to the, to the church in Ephesus, it's a gift of God. You can't even boast about the fact that your eyes have been opened to see this clearly. But I trust that the reason I can be confident in the presence of God because by faith, this righteousness has been revealed in the person of Christ and is now my own. It is now my own. So, this is the essence of the gospel. And it is the best news the world has ever received. And I wanted just to think about a couple of ways in which we can see this as being very practical in today's life. Here's some practical aspects of that. It means that you are set free from the ghosts of your past. Do you have those? You know what those are. I don't know what yours are, and you don't know what mine are, but I know I have them, and I know you have them. And it means you are set free from the ghosts of your past. We have that nagging memory of things that we've done, said, or thought that we wish we could take back. Or we can think of those times in our life when we wish we had done such and such and we didn't do it. These are the ghosts that can haunt us. And the gospel says, guess what? Your righteousness isn't bound up with those mistakes or those failures or those flaws. Those ghosts can't keep it away. The gospel means that we are set free from the fears that we will someday in the future fail. So while you might feel pretty good about your life right now, you know what it's like to worry about your ability to maintain that quote-unquote, goodness, that path. The gospel sets you free from those fears. The gospel means you can let go of your pride. This is perhaps one of the hardest things we have to do. But for those who think they've lived a pretty good life, you know, it is very easy to look down on others because pride is a way of making you feel superior. But the gospel says you can let go of your pride. Of course, he's going to go on to say, because it's not as good as you think it is. <laughs> but that doesn't matter, because the gospel prevails. And the righteousness that God is seeing when he looks upon you is not yours, but that which has been revealed in the person of Christ. The gospel means that God's love is greater than you can ever imagine. He knows far better than you the depths of your pain, the depths of your despair and the depths of shame that exist within you. He knows those things are true of you. And yet, he says, this gospel is for you. Even though he knows the wickedness that exists in your heart, he still sent his son to be the righteousness that you lack. The gospel means that you can be honest about the darkness that you know hides in the recesses of your heart, 
but have tried to pretend doesn't exist. The gospel means that God is far more beautiful than you give him credit for being. And this beauty opens the door for your faith. It opens the door for an eagerness to follow him. So yes, the gospel is good news. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And in terms of what faith looks like in action, what faith looks like, I included Psalm 37, our confession of sin, really helps us to get a picture of that. So if you have your bulletin still with you, just take a quick look. He says, trust in the Lord. So there's that idea. And then he goes on to kind of expound that. You know, and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's another aspect of that, another way of looking at it. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And fret not. All these aspects are aspects of faith. What does faith look like? It means to wait patiently for the Lord. It means not to fret when you see awful things happening. It means commit your way to the Lord. It means take delight in the Lord. It means follow the Lord in the way that you live. So the gospel is good news. It's the power of God for salvation, for all who believe. And it comes by faith. And it never stops being by faith. Which, by the way, that's another danger I think we run into. I think we think of the gospel as this, this initial good news for the someone to, to make some commitment before Christ, and then it's up to them to try and live a life in accord with it. And while you may have initially gotten there in your relationship with God through faith, now it's up to you to maintain it. I love the fact that it says it's for faith, from faith, to faith. It's the whole shebang. It never stops being by faith. We never move away from trying to make that righteousness something that we are responsible for. It's always the righteousness of Christ that God will see when he looks upon those who believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gospel, for this very good news, this news that sets us free from all these anxieties, all these fears, all these worries, all these sense and temptation to despair. It sets us free, Lord, to live a life in pursuit of your character and your nature that is true and meshes with you. Father, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes that we can see more and more of the grandiose nature of this gospel, that our faith would be bolstered, it would be encouraged, it would be strengthened, that it would guide us. Because we see Jesus Christ embodying your character in, in perfection. And we know that as you look upon us, that is what you see. As we look upon you and trust in you and by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.